Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson four. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal. We thank you that it is for whosoever will. We thank you that the entrance of it can change life anytime, anywhere, any place, any circumstance. If we would bow the knee of our soul and bow the knee of our life and bow the knee of our mind and our intellect to receive the wisdom, the wisdom, the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom and the might of heaven, the wisdom of the word of God, Father, if we would receive it and think it and believe it and speak it, you said, Father, that nothing would be impossible to us. So I praise you and thank you, Father, for helping us walk a little bit further as we look in some of the absolute, look to some of the absolute veracity of your word. It is the word of God, not the word of a man. It's not a story that we, that we read. It's a truth that we, that we grasp and we embrace. So please, please, Holy Spirit, help us as we walk through these these truths of yours, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I just finished one on, uh, in Exodus 3, verse 2 and 4, where Moses turns aside to see the burning bush, and I put on point A, prospective intercessors, it seems, normally have some form of encounter with the Spirit of God. He has within him this person, this prospective intercessor, has within him the curiosity it draws him to come nearer, to seek to understand more. And as I said, has this been the case with yourself? What or who has caused you to move nearer to God? Could other shepherds have possibly seen the manifestations? Why do some fear what others revere? Point C. In Exodus 3, verse 4 through 9, God lets Moses know in absolute terms that he has heard the cry of his people. This is absolutely or extremely vital for each man and woman of God to understand. God is seeing and God is listening regardless of timing. And I mean by that, regardless of our sense of timing. God is seeing everything right now that has to do with your life. Never doubt that. God knows everything that has to do with your life. Never doubt that. And I don't care what he sees, he does not condemn. He is with you forever to help you, to bridge the gap, to pull you up, to set you right, to put you on the right, in the right direction. Now, I put, said the following list of verses and their truth must be in all of our hearts. These, as I put, these are only a few of the many which communicate this, the fact that God is listening. In other words, he is listening. So I'm going to run through them quickly, right from verse number one, Genesis 18, 14. I'm going to just run through these if I can. Genesis 18, 14. I'll start in verse 11. It says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in years. It had ceased to be with Sarah as with young women. She was past the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become aged, shall I have pleasure and delight, my Lord husband being old also. Verse 13, And the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I really bear a child when I am so old? Verse 14, Is anything too hard? Is anything too hard? Is it? Is it? Is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? At the appointed time, 
When the season for her delivery comes around, I will return to you and Sarah shall have born a son. It's just, again, I just want to run through these because I just, you have to keep baptizing yourself in this. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. Numbers 11, 23. We'll just do some Bible calisthenics, as I used to say for a moment. Numbers 11. <clears throat> this is where Moses is concerned about the people and whether or not the food's going to come. Are they going to have enough food to feed all the multitudes? And he comes down here in verse 21. But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen besides all the women and children. And you have said, I will give them meat and they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds, in other words, where are you going to get enough food to feed these guys? Shall flocks and herds be killed to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be collected to satisfy them? The Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's hand, his ability and power become short and thwarted and inadequate? You shall see now whether my word shall come to pass for you or not. Now again, I'm only going to go through these familiar verses because I want you to understand something. You and I must stop limiting God by virtue of the natural conditions that are around about us. You, if you're going to be used in intercession, if you're going to be used in prayer in any strong measure, you've got to get yourself to this point where you quit allowing the circumstances, the surroundings as they currently are to dictate to you as to what God can do in the midst of the situation. If I allow what I see every time I walk into Parliament to move me, I would have left England years ago. Do you understand me? If I allow some of the things I hear from some of these men who are so learned, who have so many letters behind their name, to move me, I would have probably left life many, many years ago. You know, I'm telling you, I can't, you can't, we can't allow ourselves to be consistently moved by conditions, circumstances as they presently are. I go back to the teaching we did many, many years ago about the Greek word for man is anthropos, where we get the word anthropology. But the root word, the classic Greek word for that, I love it, is it means, it doesn't just mean man, it means one created looking up. I've never forgotten that. God created man. One creative looking up. Hell's job throughout all history has been to de-elevate our vision and to get us to look exactly at what's in front of us that we might be confused or moved by it or to be cast down and look beneath where God's created us to look into whom we've been made. Anyhow, nevertheless, you see, and so I don't know what to do. I'm sorry if they're old scriptures. I'm, you know, they are pretty old. You know, this is an old teaching. It's like thousands of years old and it's evidently still good enough because it continues to produce the fruit that it was intended to produce, Okay. So I'm sorry if it's an old teaching to go through these scriptures, but the fact is, is the, arm, is the arm of the Lord shortened? Is there anything too hard for the Lord to do? Does it make a difference with God if Abraham is 100 or 500? If Sarah is 100 or 250? What difference is that to do with God? Is it, does it make a difference to God? I always love, you know, when I do that teaching on nothing-minded, in Matthew 14, when they take the five loaves and the two fish and they feed the, you know, 12,000 people. Then in Matthew 15, three days later, they come up and the same situation occurs, the same opportunities there. And this time the disciples, when Jesus tells them to go feed them, he said, the disciples answer this time is, well, Lord, this time we only have four loaves and a few small fish. In other words, the size of the fish may make a difference to you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, and somehow I'm just trying to say, but this is the way we think, you see. The situation always happens when it comes to people, even people that are called people of faith. Well, but maybe the Lord doesn't understand this situation. 
This one he may have never dealt with or considered before. This one just may be out of his league. You don't understand what I'm going through, Brother Rod. You don't understand. I'm different. My situation is unique. Why hell itself has come against me because I'm so important to the body of Christ is really what they say. That's actually what they're winding up saying. What they're saying is that evidently your situation is so unique that Satan, the king of darkness himself, has been assigned to your life. And really, most of the time, like I said, it's just our flesh or our ignorance of God and what have you. And what I'm trying to say is, forgive me when I say this, but sweetheart, you ain't that unique. <laughs> None of us are that unique. We're all in the same body of Christ. We're all going through the same hells. We're all on the same chessboard. We're all different players on the same match called life. And so God has one solution for all things, and it's caught up in His name of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the answer, and God's Word is His solution. God's Word is the only key that God's ever ordained that begins to unlock liberty, life, freedom, peace, healing, whatever it is that we need. But you know us, like I said, we want something spectacular. Well, it's pretty spectacular when the Lord says to Moses... Would you quit trying to figure out how many flocks or how many herds of animals out there? I'm not limited by what you see. I'm God. And see, you and I, we, I, I know I'm making it humorous, but you and I, something in my limited ability, within the limits, God help me to say this, within the limits, my limits, my ability to think, to conjure, within my limits, I still can have the freedom to imagine limitlessness you know, of, that he has. He's limitless. All through the New Testament, that's why I love those verses so much when it speaks about the unlimited, the unlimited, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I have to bank on that. My faith is in the fact that I serve an unlimited God. Remember, even in the Psalms, it says one of the indictments against Israel was that they limited the Holy One of Israel. Let's be delivered from limitations. You hear me? Seriously, let's quit limiting God to our arena of understanding. I mean, He's bigger than you. Whether you like it or not, He's bigger than you. So Numbers 11 says that. We read Genesis 18. Turn to Isaiah 50 real quickly. Because you're going to be intercessors that are not going to be hampered by just looking and seeing what everyone else sees. You and I get to see things other people don't see. Because when you see from God's perspective, you have a much greater opportunity to have vision. And you and I must see from where we're seated. We're seated at the right hand of God. You can see from down here if you want. But again, when I was first being taught these things by God in prayer, like I said, 25 years ago in Bakersfield, California, and like I said over and over again, sitting in that room when I, when I was hired as an intercessor, when I was salaried, remember, I was salaried, I was paid, my first ministerial position was I was salaried and paid to pray four hours a day, five days a week. And so when I'd be in this little room and I'd be going through all this stuff, and I always remember, like I said, on this desk, I had a golf ball, didn't even play golf, the golf ball falls off. And this day, and I'm, it's just like it was yesterday, and I'm looking at this golf ball, and I'm just walking around praying, and I just suddenly heard the Lord say, that's the earth. And all of a sudden, I saw this perspective of God up here in the earth, and he said, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> and it was, to me, it was a big thing, because I was seeing, he was just using something simple, and he said, your problem is, he said, you keep praying 
from there instead of from here. And it was so simple, but something struck me. I've made you to sit together with me in heavenly places. And he said to me, if you will pray from where you're seated, you'll see things so much different. Because you have to, you know, when you're above something, you can see behind what's in front of you. Right here, if Esther's standing directly in front of me, I can look straight at Esther. But when I can elevate myself, get on a ladder on a platform, I can see behind Esther. I can see Graham. I can see Gee. I can see whosoever's back there. I can see what's behind the issue. But when we're so often confronted by the problems and the situations that are happening in our relationship with our family, our spouses, our business, the thing looms so big in front of us that we can't see anything else because it's right in front of us. But God's desire is that we elevate ourselves and begin to pray from above, pray from where we're seated. But again, that's a spiritualism, I know, but it's nevertheless the truth. I can only see things as they really are when I see them from God's perspective. I will immediately put limits on things because of my own natural experience. But God's experience is supernatural. It's a higher plane of understanding, and so nothing is limited to Him. So I begin to see beyond what I feel physically, whether it be my healing issue, my financial issue, whatever it is. This is what begins to happen. Something begins to speak louder than what your flesh says to you. Your faith begins to be the dominant force, not your circumstance. Your faith declares that this will change. Now, I'm not talking about spiritual witchcraft. I'm not talking about you taking the principle of faith and trying to change something to suit your needs. I'm talking about when you see something that you know is, the, is out of the will of God, it's an injustice again. This is an injustice that this be taking place in this school. This is an injustice. It's against the will of God here. Well, I can begin to see that through my faith and begin to declare to the realm of the Spirit over the thing that, it, you know, that I'm going to release and establish and see justice established in the city's gates. But again... I'm telling you, whether you like it or not, few people really have the old-fashioned spiritual backbone to take that position as really a dyed-in-the-wool intercessor. But again, I don't want anybody, God help me, I don't want to be communicating. I don't want anybody to get under condemnation. I want you to all know, like I keep saying over and again, we're all called to be prayer. But I, the, the thing is about, you see, intercession isn't something you choose to do. It sneaks up on you. Intercession, if you are used as an intercessor, it's because you've been faithful as a prayer warrior. You've been faithful in prayer, and suddenly God, God sees this tenacity. He sees this, this willingness to go the whole route, to sell out for the whole route, like they used to say. He sees there's something in you that makes you keep going where others stop. And suddenly one day, he'll just sneak up on you and drop something in your lap, and it's a project, and you faint, and you go... And all of a sudden, like I said, it grips you and it becomes part of you and you wish it wasn't there, but you wake up with it, you can't go to sleep with it. Like I said, you, told you the first day, you, I mean, you, you couldn't get rid of it if you, didn't, if you, if you wanted to. That's when you realize something, you know, intercession. I mean, something has attacked me. But it's your fault because you were faithful in prayer. Okay, so then you get to go to another level and experience a whole other issue. Nevertheless, everybody smile and say, glory to God. Isaiah 50 Let's just look at a couple of others. Isaiah 50 again. I just, I just want you to see some very familiar scriptures that we have to have in our spirit. It says uh, uh, in verse 2, Isaiah 50 verse 2, Why God, God is speaking. He said, Why when I came was there no man? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, 
I mean, we serve a big God. At my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make rivers a desert. The fish stink because there's no water. They die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with the blackness of murky storm clouds. I make sackcloth of mourning their covering. But the servant of God says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple and of one who has taught that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as a disciple as one who is taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I have not been rebellious or turned away backward. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore have I not been ashamed or confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. There's a ton of stuff in that, but verse two says again, when I came, why was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened at all? Is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem or have I no power to deliver? Never find yourself in the position where you think God doesn't have the power to deliver. There is nothing impossible to him in whom we believe, nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing is impossible to God. Well, that makes me happy anyhow, even if it doesn't make you happy. And of course, Hebrews 7, 25, and that's the only one I read, then we'll go further, further in the outline. But Hebrews 7, this is a great one, again, speaking of Jesus. Hebrews 7, 25 says, well, verse 24, speaking to Jesus, says, but he holds his priesthood unchangeably because he lives forever. Verse 25 says, therefore he, Jesus, our God, he is able also to save, listen to this verse. Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity, those who come to God through him, since he is always living to make petition to God and intercede with him and intervene for them. Hallelujah. Just again, scriptures that you and I need to have written upon the fleshly tablets of our heart. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession. He ever lives to make intercession. Here again comes the key that we're going to get to in a moment, or one of the keys. Listen to me. He ever lives to make intercession. Now the Greek, the forms of the words there speak to something that's unusual. Uh, we would say, often people say, well, you know what the Bible says? He's up there forever making intercession for you. But the Greek, there's participles that are in there, speak to it the way it's formed. It's that he longs to ever make intercession for you, but sometimes he's unable to, is what it almost speaks to, what it actually speaks to, because, it, because remember, at the right hand of God, it always is the right hand, not the left hand, because remember, it's an old picture of the way judicial systems worked. The right hand was the one who brought the acquittal or brought all the information for justification. The left hand was the one that brought the condemnation that was the prosecution, as it were. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand. We're seated together with him. I said, we're seated together with him. But what happened is the intercessor had to have the information. Jesus Christ had to have something to offer to the Father. This is why when we come to God through Jesus, we come with our unrighteousness, but we come in his name. Then Jesus can turn to the Father and say, Lord, they're here but they're here in my name because of my sacrifice, because of my blood. That's why we come to God in his name. That's why we have this freedom of access. But he ever lives to make intercession, but we have to give him something to intercede with. It's called our faith. I said it's called our faith. Amen. And the fact that he is well able to save. He's well able to save. Anyhow, let me, I'm hurrying for a reason.
Point D. Now then the Lord, let's turn back to Exodus. Let's get back into Exodus 2 and 3 here for a minute. Actually, chapter 3 and 4. Exodus chapter 3. I mean, I'll read the verses where we finished off again because here comes the commission. So let me start reading from verse uh, 4 again. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and again, this is when Moses has seen the burning bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of this bush, out of the midst of this manifestation, just like God's called to me in times past when I saw something happen that I knew was the Spirit of God. Moses, Moses, and Moses answered, Here am I. God said, Do not come near. Put your shoes off your feet, for the place in which you stand is holy ground. Also, he said, I am the God of your father. He introduces himself to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, he said, I am the God. By saying that, he's saying, Moses, I am the same God that manifested himself to all of your forefathers that you know about, that you've heard about, that's been passed down through all generations. I'm the God that was there with Abraham. I'm the God that was there with Isaac. I'm the God that was here with Jacob. And now, guess what? I'm the God that's here with you. Hallelujah. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, which is not actually too wrong a thing to feel. And the Lord said, I have surely seen, I have surely, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and oppressors. For I know their sorrows and sufferings and trials and I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand and the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land good and large, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty, to the place of all these people, Canaanites and so on. Verse 9, Now behold, behold, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I've seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So here again, now is when we come to it. And what does he do? So God hears, sees, knows, understands all. He sees the problem that anybody in this city is having. He sees the problem that anybody in our church is having. There's two major issues that always come up, like I said, dependent on the circumstance. But number one, it says, then he says in verse 10, God's answer to Moses, I've seen all these things. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring forth my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And as I said, when we finished the last hour, up to that point, Moses was probably okay because you're excited about the fact you're in the middle of a manifestation of God and you're seeing something that's incredible and you would surely after your fear begins to maybe dispel a little bit, the idea of being in this place with all this manifestation must be huge. Particularly you're hearing these awesome words about what God's going to do. God has heard. God is answering. God's come down. God's going to do this. And you're going, man, this is awesome. I wonder how he's going to do it. I mean, I wonder what it's going to look like as it manifests. This is incredible. This city's going to be delivered. The city's going to be saved. People are going to get saved in the House of Commons and Parliament. People are, this, it's incredible. People are going to be healed. All this is incredible. I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder how it's going to happen. And then you hear him say, so 
go do it. And you go, like Moses said in the next verse, from verse 11 onwards. And Moses said to God, uh, who am I? Wait a second. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So that's like this first major question. The Lord issues a commission to Moses, point D, and tells him that he will use him to bring freedom and deliverance to his people. Exodus 3, 8. And I have come down. How? In something Moses sees every day of his life as a shepherd. These bushes and brambles as he walks around this desert. He's been out there for 40 years, remember. But this time he, spe- he sees something in something that he sees all the days of his life, but now something's different because God's taking the opportunity to speak to him something absolutely unfamiliar. Listen to me. He's going to speak to him something absolutely unfamiliar out of something that's familiar. I'm telling you, you need to have your eyes open at all times. I've learned this, like I said, whether it be with scripture or whatever, I can so easily turn my mind and spirit off when I turn to Mark eleven twenty three, 23, or when I turn to James 1, 7, or when I turn to some of these scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I can quote them so readily. I know where they're at so readily that I can turn off and miss something that God wants to say fresh, new, that's unfamiliar to me because I am so bound by the familiarity of it. This is something you and I have. This is why prayer, before you ever get to intercession, before you ever maybe get involved in it, why prayer, like I said, is so crucial because it gets you delivered from your little barnacles and your brittleness and your, your familiarity and, oh, it's going to be the same. You must not be bound. Everyone else in church can be bound to that, but I'm asking you, I'm charging you, you don't let yourself be bound to that. Don't be bound to the attitude of familiarity that every time you go to church, well, I'm going to go to church today because it's like my duty. This is what I do. I go to church and, oh, they're going to praise and somebody will sing a couple songs and then a guy is going to get up and going to preach something. So, you know, just familiar. And so immediately you see you carry with you a problem. And forgive me for going through the, I, don't, I only know certain, the only illustrations I have are the illustrations I have, so don't get mad at me. I should be more creative, but the only ones I have are the ones I've lived through. And I, like I said, I always remember John Baser, a good friend of mine, going in, he and I, I probably shared this the last couple of weeks. I don't remember, because I don't remember where I've said what. <laughs> but John and I go into this church service in California many, many, many years ago. John Baser, incredible Bible teacher. He was one of my best friends back then. Still would be a good friend, since I haven't seen the guy in 100 years. John is an incredible teacher. We walk into this church service and this guy stands up, like I said, and he says, turn with me to Mark eleven twenty two, 22. And, you know, and this guy preaches the message on faith and speaking to the mountains and what have you. And I sat there, man, and I got so blessed. And, I, you know, it's not that I'm always super holy, but this time I was good. <laughs> I was blessed. I heard so much. I received so much. But my point is, when it was done, and they said, amen, and I turned to John, and I said, man, I said, that was hot. That was good stuff, wasn't it? And I never forget, John just looked over at me, and goes, oh, man. He said, I turned off the moment he said, turn there. He said, I've, you know, he said, I've heard this so many times. And he just disembarked, disconnected, detached himself from the whole service because of what? Familiarity. Just boom. Didn't receive anything. And I remember when I got in my car thinking to myself, God, why? I love this guy. I know that. How could I taught it more than he has? 
I'd taught the message myself, you know, hundreds of times by then. And I thought to myself, but why? why? What's the difference? You see, what's the difference? What is the difference? Why did I get so blessed by this? Because I'm not more spiritual than he is or anybody else. But why did I get blessed and he got nothing? Why did I get something when he got nothing? And he said, it's so simple, just that. And he said, because you prayed before you ever got there. You invested into this service. Therefore, you reaped a dividend from the service. You have to invest to increase. You have to invest to increase. And again, it just taught me something years ago why there's a great fight of faith, even in this area, like I said, to destroy the sense of familiarity because it will rob you of revelation. Trust me. Do you hear me? Anybody listen to me? It'll destroy revelation. So you as an individual have to work at this because you have to discover whatever it takes in your own life to make sure that when you do something, you don't just go... You know, it, it, I hope it doesn't sound like it's boasting, but I've actually read the Bible a few times, okay? As you have. But I have read the Bible a few times all the way through. And I'm, I can't. This is what I mean. This is why, how many times have you heard me say this? Always read the Bible out loud to yourself. Every student I've ever taught, I've taught them, always read the Bible out loud because it's what kept me from allowing it to just be familiar. Because, you know, otherwise you read Scripture and you're like this, you know. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great light, why the bush is not burned. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, appeared to me. And Moses said, and you know, that's how you read, right? That's how some of you still read it. Okay, I've done my duty. And you ain't done zip. And you don't have a great reward. <laughs> and God is not impressed by the fact that you just spent 30 minutes doing something by rote. Because there was not, your heart was not connected to what you were doing. So all I can say is, guys, fight familiarity. You hear me? Moses had seen bushes for 40 years out there. And I don't know, and glints and glares of sun off rocks and things may have happened and occurred at different times, but I'm just saying God speaks to him something unfamiliar out of something that's familiar. That's just so simple, I know, but nevertheless, if you can catch it, because this is part of our warfare. So in Exodus 3, God says, and I have come down. How in something Moses sees every day of his life as a shepherd, but this time it speaks to him. This bush that now burns. Then Exodus 3.10, he said, come now, I'll send you. So I've got two questions again. Probably every course I teach, I always ask these same questions about the same issue because it comes up and everything. Number one, why doesn't God just deliver the people himself? answer me. God's heard their cry. Is that correct? God's seen their inflection. Is that correct? Right? Now, is God God? Is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything impossible to God? So why doesn't God just do it? Why doesn't God just do it? Why doesn't anywhere in the Bible God just do it. You've got to see the pattern. You've got to understand. Whether you and I will ever fully comprehend and understand on this side of the heaven is not the issue. The fact is something did happen with the fall of man. The earth was turned over. The leasehold, as some people use the terminology, the leasehold of the earth was turned over into the hands of Satan. 
Even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 still says, Satan is the God of this world. This world that you and I live in is still under a curse. But you and I are the people that God loves. He loves us more than anything else. And we, by and through the blood of Jesus Christ, have been redeemed back unto God. And we now have opportunity to walk in perfect fellowship, perfect restored relationship, perfect all with, with God. And I'll upset you, but this is from blood covenant teaching. You've been restored to an even better relationship than Adam had with God before the fall by virtue of redemption through the blood of Jesus and the fact that now we're just not his created being. We're now filled with the fullness of God himself. But the issue is this. Why doesn't God just deliver his people? Because there's something in the spirit realm, there's something that's happened judicially that evidently heaven and earth still abides by. It's spiritual law. It's spiritual law. I said I, don't, I can't explain it all myself, but it's the truth. God is... Here's where, this, this is going to sound like a total contradiction when I said the first hour. If there is any limitation upon God's ability, the limitation comes because of God's people. That's all. That's not news to you. But would you please hear it? God is always looking for people. I have heard, I have seen, I understand it. I see it all. And I'm here to deliver. Now, who will go and do it? See, you have to understand this thing about responsibility. God has fulfilled his part of the deal. He is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. But the way this contract is written, <laughs> we're the implements. We're the implementation of the will of God. The will of God is released into the earth through his men and women that will hear him and that will obey him and that will go in the strength of his name, which is exactly what Moses winds up doing. So why doesn't God just deliver the people? What is the pattern seen here? Like I said, that I just spoke to you. Turn to Amos 3, 7 real quick. Again, you know these real well. Amos, or if you want, I'll just read it to you so that you don't have to keep looking to and fro. And it simply says this verse again, Surely the Lord God will do nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The Lord God will do nothing first without first revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And again, if you see the pattern, God's up here. He wants to do something. But before he does anything, he reveals it to somebody on earth. Here it says he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. But think again of what the prophets, in the most simplistic of terms, what the definition of the prophets were. Prophets did what? They spoke forth the word of God. Didn't they? They spoke forth the message that God gave them. See, it had to be released in earth. God will do nothing without first finding somebody to release it. And again, when you understand this whole thing about faith and all that, why we have to understand all these principles, because it's just the way it is. God spoke the worlds into existence 
with his word. There was no man then to be his agent, but he created man to be, he created man, remember, in his likeness and in his image. And again, incredible words there in the Hebrew because it doesn't mean that man was to be a representative. The Hebrew words are incredible, the difference when you hear it, when you study new creation or analyze. Man, you know, even the word Adam, Adam, Dom is the Hebrew word for blood. Adam, from blood, his blood, cell. But it, mean, it, it, it says that when it says likeness and image, there's two different words, but what it speaks to is that it says this in, in the TWOT, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. It said that man was not made to be a representative of God, but rather a living representation of God. Now that is heavy. Do you understand the difference? In other words, man in his first creation was not made to represent God. He was made representational. The image, he was God in the earth. Oh, yeah. In this, you got to be real careful there because this is what really we're called to be today. But we have been so diluted from the truth through false teaching, wrong teaching, and so much junk that you know, few if any ever walk in it because the body of Christ won't let them walk in it. Like I said, that's why the people who lived during the day of Smith Wigglesworth didn't praise him like we do. The people who lived during the day of John Wesley, even, who didn't operate in this kind of faith, but nevertheless, remember, he was constantly, constantly persecuted. John G. Lake was constantly persecuted. All these guys were constantly, and they weren't persecuted, remember, by the world. They were persecuted by the body of Christ. Every hero of faith there is is persecuted by religious tradition and religious structure. Every one of them. So you know you're getting close to doing something right when everybody in the church hates you. Oh, well. Anyhow, let's just... But this is why, again, I keep going. There's so many other things you have to learn. You don't just blurt out these things. It's Romans again. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Practice it as in the presence of God alone. And again, this is what I mean. See, if, you're, if people, when they want to understand intercession, if you're in this for recognition, you're in the wrong place. You understand? Because the whole idea of really the heartbeat of this comes down to the point that you may never be recognized by a ministry you may never be recognized by some body or structure because your reward comes from him alone. Amen. He who sees in secret will reward you in the open. Oh, you'll have a reward, but it won't be from the religious, religious traditionalist. It won't be from the structured hierarchy of church. Your reward comes from those moments with him. Your reward comes from the embrace you feel from heaven and the peace that you have that is beyond all comprehension, that really is worth more money than the earth can ever offer you. Trust me, it really is. The few times you tap into it, you go, it just transcends anything. This is what Moses, like he said, he looked away and unto him who is invisible. 
And he just saw that there was such wealth in this that it made all the fleeting pleasures of sin be nothing compared to it. So it's a journey. It's a, it's a, journey. It's a journey of choices and opportunities and what have you. And then Isaiah 59, 16, of course, is the classic passage, the whole passage on intercession, showing Jesus Christ as the chief intercessor. And Isaiah 59, 16, again, is where, again, the whole chapter here is, of course, we'll get to it at some point, but I don't know if we will really in all this teaching from Moses, but surely you're familiar with this, this passage, at least. But again, the whole chapter speaks about, again, the injustice, there's no justice, there's no justice, there's no justice. And because it says, uh, well, okay, verse 14, justice is turned away backward, righteousness, uprightness and right standing with God stands afar off. For truth had fallen in the street, the city's forum. Uprightness cannot, it cannot enter the courts of justice. Yes, truth is lacking, verse 15. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And then it says this, the Lord saw it. Everybody say the Lord saw it. And just, now, just like in Moses, just like back there in Egypt, the Lord saw it, didn't he? Did he see everything? He saw everything. He understood everything. He knew it all. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And I'm here to tell you, it still displeases him today when there's no justice. But here again, what's the pattern? Verse 16, and he saw that there was no man and wondered and wondered Remember what the word wondered is, shamem in the Greek, in the Hebrew, S-H-A-M-E-M, means to be stupefied with amazement. To be stupefied. To be stupefied with amazement. Now, can you, have you ever seen somebody that had a stupefied look on their face? I mean, try to picture what, whatever that might look like. To, be, to see something, to just be, you know, like, <laughs> stupefied with amazement. Can you imagine that... What it's saying is that God looks on the earth, sees all the injustice, and what blows his mind in today's vernacular is what? What blows his mind? What is it that blows his mind? What stupefies him with amazement? That there's no intercessor. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, no one to intervene on behalf of truth and right. That's the pattern. When God sees injustice, the way he comes down is through an individual, through an intercessor. And here it says, therefore, his own arm. Arm always speaks of the strength. So his own strength was in his son. Therefore his own arm brought him victory, and his own righteousness, having the spirit without measure, sustained him. For the Lord, and of course it's talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for the Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate or a coat of mail, salvation as a helmet upon his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Here again, is the, this, this is the garment of the intercessor. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a coat of mail, or a coat of mail, salvation as a helmet upon his head. In other words, what protects your mind is the revelation of your eternal salvation. I am saved. Everything else is just everything else. But the most important issue, the thing that keeps my mind at peace is that I have eternal life. 
Salvation is a helmet. It protects your head. He has salvation as a helmet. He, puts, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad. Listen to this phrase. He was clad with zeal and furious divine jealousy as a cloak. Now, I've got to be careful because I could start teaching this whole chapter, and we don't want to do that right now. But I want you to listen. You have to hear this. He was, you know what a cloak is? You know what a cloak, that's like a cloak, a wrap, a cloak. Think about it. Think about if we over here in some closet had a cloak and the entire thing was electric with coming off of it and it was what it was, what it was made out of was furious, divine jealousy for righteousness. In other words, this fury. I mean, it's like, it almost sounds like the contradictory divine and wrath. But see, this, this desire for justice, this desire for that which is right to be in place. Jesus wore that in everything that he did. His love manifested from that. But you see, remember this armor that's talking about there? Does that sound familiar? Of course, it's Ephesians 6, which is the exact same armor that you and I are told to put on. See, they will call you fanatic. Like I said, they'll call you wild. They'll call you whatever they want to call you. But there is a love for that which is right and good that becomes so strong that it is furious. And you have to learn how to temper the way you express it before people. This is why you learn to express it before God and express it before the realm of the Spirit more than you express it before people because they will not understand. But I'm telling you, if you ever do get near him for a moment, you will be delivered of timidity because he is not timid. I said he's not timid. He's not fearful. God's not afraid, I mean, duh, of anything. And you see, this is part of the wrap, the clothing, the garment, the coat, the trench coat, the whatever you want to call it, that is offered to those that's at least waiting in the closet of heaven. And you're to enter into your closet and pray, you know what I mean? That's where that mantle is. And you put that thing on, and it changes the way you pray. You don't pray little milk toast prayers. You may be nice in front of people because you're all things to all men that you might win them, but when you're on your own, I mean, my strongest prayers are never prayed in front of people. And I doubt if your strongest prayers are ever prayed in front of people. See, when I'm alone is when I rejoice because I do not have to worry about what you think. I just don't have to worry about it. I'm not intimidated. The physical presence of others doesn't, I don't have to worry about it. This is why I said when you're honestly studying prayer in the Bible, you'll find it's true that over 90% of all prayer is private. It's a private thing. Very, very, very seldom do you have a corporate anointing because so many people are so moved by everything else that's going around them that they can't be themselves. But if you do get the opportunity to train a group of people and they all learn how to be alone in the midst of a crowd, then you've got some power available because the power of God is released by factors by virtue of corporate faith and corporate anointings. If you ever really step into a corporate anointing, it's incredible. Nobody has to pray. The stuff, miracles just happen. 
because of this conduit of this, this connection that's made with heaven. It's, in, it's, it's something that's important. Everybody smile. Acts 7 tells us that Moses was in Midian for 40 years. It is supposed that this is when he wrote the book of Genesis. Not that that's big deal to you, but this is when you study this stuff, that's what they say. And in fact, some people say that he was the author of Job, but you can't validate it, but whether he was or not makes a difference. Acts 7 tells us Moses was in Midian for 40 years. In other words, 40 years in Pharaoh, under Pharaoh, then 40 years in the, as a shepherd. It is supposed that this is when he wrote the book of Genesis, which could only have happened after his encounter with God, right? Because before the encounter of God, there's no revelation to how creation took place. And remember, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. While it can't be proven, it is understood that Moses went up and down visiting with God and discovering the revelation of his power in creation, training for 40 years before actually returning to Egypt. The questions and the complaints of Moses, and the very first one, of course, that we saw back in, in, uh, in Exodus. If you're not there, we need to just turn back to Exodus 4 real quick. We're going to wind up stopping already here in a few moments. But is when... Uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 3, is when he said to Moses, God said to Moses in verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring forth, that you may bring forth my people. And the first question of Moses is, of course, who am I that I should do it? Moses' first response is, who am I? His own sense of smallness, his own sense of smallness compared to the great issue that is being considered. And so basically the statement is, as we've all said before, how can I make a difference in this thing, in such a situation as this? Moses knew the strength of Pharaoh. He lived under him for 40 years. He knew the strength of the armies of Pharaoh. In fact, later on, I've got my notes here when you study it. Moses was known as a man who conquered all of Ethiopia in an incredible historical feat that's, still, that's actually chronicled in, in history books and in, in some of the, all these old, old things, that museums and what have you, where they have the name of Moses down with all these things. But the fact is, he was around that. He understood it. So Moses, when God says, I'm going to send you, he said, who am I? Even though it said in Acts 7 that Moses was a man that was strong at that time, strong in his own might and what have you, he knew that against the might of Pharaoh and all Egypt, he had no strength whatsoever to compare to that strength. His own sense of smallness. Now here's another quote from F.B. Meyer from his book, Moses, the Servant of God. Quote, there was something more than humility here. There was a tone of self-deprecation which was inconsistent with the true faith in God's selection and appointment. Surely it is God's business to choose his special instruments. And when we are persuaded that we are in the line of his purpose, we have no right to question the wisdom of his appointment. To do so is to depreciate his wisdom or to doubt his power and willingness to become all that is necessary to complete our need. To question his approaching you is to question his wisdom and is to question and doubt his power and willingness to become all that's necessary to complete the situation. Hallelujah. So why, this is why I keep, I'm going back and forth saying the same thing in a hundred different areas because when it all come, what it all comes down to is you and I need faith <laughs> to 
to understand that the, the answer of God, what is God's answer? This is where we'll have to stop because of time. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, just, this is where we'll stop. We'll take off here next week then. In verse 12 was a simple answer. And what's, what's God say? Who is Moses? Who is Moses according to verse 12? God said, I will surely be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that I've sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on the mountain Horeb and Sinai. So as we close, let me just ask you, ask you the question. I want you to answer it for me. Moses asked God a question. Who am I that I can make a difference in such a situation as this? What is God's answer to that? Who is Moses? I'm not trying to trick you. The first sentence of verse 12. Of verse 12. Who is Moses? Who is he? None of you are wrong, per se, but just who is he? He's the man that God's with. I will be with you. I said, I will be with you. That's who he was, the guy who God was going to be with. Well, and this is where we stop, but what... Doesn't that take you to the basic, basic, basic truth of what the New Testament teaches? Emmanuel, God with us. You and I are not only people God is with, you and I are people that God is in. We're the temple of the Holy Ghost. God, deliver us from our unbelief and open our eyes to who we really are. In Jesus' name, Father, we thank you for your word. And I just ask that you continue to cause us to dare to believe what the Bible says about us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.